This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of our OITE slash our board review series. We are continuing on with some adult reconstruction. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE slash our board review series, and let's just continue on in. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. But what is the Paprosky classification and, and kind of the treatment that goes along with each type for femoral bone loss? Uh, yeah, so these were always ones that I uh, forgot about <laughs> and, <laughs> and didn't pay a whole lot of attention to. So people don't don't follow in my footsteps because every time <laughs> I was pimped on them, I'd be like, the what, what? Uh, but <laughs> essentially the, the Paprosky classification um, you have a type one, two, three, and four. Um, they are Roman numerals um, and not numbers. Uh, but type one uh, femoral bone loss is where the metaphysis uh, is intact. And so you can um, kind of, you can consider uh, non-cemented or press fit versus cemented implant because you do have that um metaphysis and the distal diaphysis intact. Type two is when you have metaphyseal bone loss, but you have an intact diaphysis. And those are the ones where uh, you're going to use those stems that you just talked about, the, the porous coated uh, distal fixation diaphyseal fit stems. So thinking like the, um, like Arcos, the S-ROM, or not necessarily the S-ROM, because S-ROM is more metaphyseal fit, uh, or or yeah, the SROM is, but then the, the rest mod with striker is diaphyseal fit. Um, and then other, I mean, DJO has an implant, United Orthopedics has an implant for, for distal fixation. Um, type three can be split up into A and B, where you have metaphyseal uh, bone loss, you have some diaphyseal bone loss, but I uh, the type 3A is where you have greater than four centimeters of intact diaphysis. And a type 3B is when you have less than four, four centimeters of intact diaphysis. And that's what you were talking about before, where you need four centimeters of isthmus required for certain stems, like a diaphyseal engaging uh, tapered stem. But um, it's more just, is there greater than four or less than four uh, centimeters intact? And then a type four is when you have deficient metaphyseal bone and you do not have a supportive diaphysis. So that's when you're thinking more of like the proximal femur replacements and cementing distally where theoretically they should have better bone for cemented fixation. Um, and so what are some of the types of revision uh, acetabular cups? Yeah, so, you know, on the, other, on the other side of things, so when you're looking at acetabulum, one is you can still use an 
a hemispherical cup, but you may have augments um, that you use, you know, for uh, on a hemispherical cup. And these can be used for uh, patients that have defects in the acetabular rim. Uh, another thing you can use are jumbo cups. So these jumbo cups are going to be sizes bigger than 66. So uh, 66 for men and 62 for women. And these are going to be used for large cavitary defects. And uh, these can be you know associated with dislocations um, uh, postoperatively. But again, these are going to be these jumbo cups. So you have uh, hemispherical cups that you can put an augment on. You have these jumbo cups that are sized bigger than 66. You can have an anti-protrusio cage. Um, those can be used to treat large contained defects. Um, you can have kind of this cup and cage uh, uh, construct. So where you where you put a, a like a jumbo cup in, and then you augment that, or you, or you put a cage as well uh, with some screws in the pelvis um, to add a little bit of extra fixation. So that's kind of this cup cage construct where you combine the jumbo cup as well as that cage. Then you can also use a triflange cup. Uh, and this is this is used uh, when the rim the rim is not in, not intact, and also some cases of pelvic discontinuity because with these uh, triflange cups, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but these can be like you know these are like custom custom you can have like custom cups where you need to get like a CT scan and plan it, and and some of these cups are especially made for uh, for different patients, and you're putting screws into the uh, into like the, the ischium and different parts of the pelvis, and you you may possibly be cementing a poly into that. So these are cups, again, um, that are going to be using difficult revision cases or cases where there's like some pelvic discontinuity. Yeah, and, yeah. The, the triflanges are almost always uh, going to be custom. And um, just like you said, I mean, there's, there's tri flange. So there's three flanges. So three parts of the pelvis, you have screws that are going into the iliac wing, you have screws going into the ischium, and then you have screws going into the uh, pubic ramus. Um, and then with the kind of 3D custom implants, they, they'll they have kind of fancy jigs and fancy uh, drill guides and all of that for you to put screws in healthy bone. It's not just going to be a, a like a haphazard uh, kind of mesh of screw holes that you can potentially use. They, the CT scan knows where good bone is. The engineers know where good bone is. And so they'll put screw holes in specific locations for you to use that. And then, yeah, you're correct that then you cement in either just a liner or you cement in a metal cup and then put a liner into that cup uh, for uh, the acetabular component. Yeah, those are... Uh... Oh, always, yeah. always. No, no, I was to say those are, those are <laughs> complex. I've, I've been in, I think I've been in one case where we took out one of these cups. Uh, it was infected. So, uh, yeah. which is a disaster case. <laughs> but yep. We took out one of those, but I've never been in a case where we, we've put one in. This may be more, you're, I'm sure you may use this more often, you know, being on the oncology side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I put a few of them in with, uh, um, they're mostly used with like zone two uh, pelvic tumors, which we'll go over this stuff when we cover the oncology stuff. But zone two is really acetabular, uh, the acetabular location, zone one, posterior, zone two, and then zone three. And uh, zone uh, two, right around the acetabulum. So you're cutting out the acetabulum. You still have intact uh, ilium, you have intact ischium, and you have intact 
pubic rami. So you're going to get a custom implant for that uh, patient. But yeah, we, I did a few of them in, in fellowship. I haven't done one oh, yet man. as an attending and I'm, I want to do them, but I also know that I'm going to be extremely terrified to do <laughs> one on my own for the first time. Oh, man, it's, it's, I would be as well. <laughs> Can't lie. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. ROCK is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access ROCK content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Uh, oh man, you got the you got the the double of these questions, but Perfect. <laughs> what's the proprosky defect for acetabular defects uh, in in their treatment? So, uh, just like the femoral side, you I mean, the femoral side has type one, two, three, and four. The acetabular side has uh, one, two, and three. Again, Roman numerals. Type one is when you have uh, the acetabular rim intact and small contained areas of bone loss. So with that, you can pretty much use a cementless uh, acetabular component, and you're probably going to just consider some screws uh, to get improved fixation. But as long as the rim is intact and you're able to get rim fit, you should be able to, to have a stable cup. Type two is when you have uh, some sort of acetabular rim distortion or deficiency that can support a standard press fit acetabular fixation. So uh, type two uh, can be uh, broken down into A, B, and C, whereas A is uh, you have some superior migration, uh, but it's less than three centimeters above the obturator line. Uh, type two B is superior migration greater than three centimeters, but medial to Kohler's line. And for those of you that are that don't know what obturator line and Kohler's line are, as you're listening to this, just pop onto Google and, and you'll see that the, that the obturator line is parallel with the ground and Kohler's line is perpendicular to the ground. So um, we're talking about femoral heads that either go straight superior or ones that go superior and uh, lateral. So the straight superior migration ones are type two A and B. And the difference between those are less than three centimeters or greater than three centimeters from the obturator line. And then type two C is superior migration, um, but they go uh, lateral to Kohler's line. And um, when you have lateral uh, uh, movement, uh, of the femoral head, then you're kind of in a, um, like an acetabular dysplasia type of patient, but they didn't necessarily, they weren't born with acetabular dysplasia, but it, it looks the same. And in these, you're going to use either, uh, a standard or a jumbo cup. If you're able to ream to good, healthy bone and get a fit, then perfect with a jumbo cup, or you're going to, uh, consider like a, uh, graft, uh, like a femoral head graft uh, 
or some other like tantalum augment in that supero uh, posterior region where most of these defects are. And then if you're looking at a, a 2B and C, you're probably using a cage for those. And then type three is superolateral uh, acetabular bone loss and greater than one third of rim deficiency. So these are kind of the, the bad uh, acetabular uh, components. And um, you're going to have uh, type 3A is def deficient superior or superolateral coverage. And type 3B is superior and medial component migration with uh, possible pelvic discontinuity. And I understand that I just went over <laughs> one, two, two, A, B, and C, three, three, A, and B. And so um, they like ortho bullets or uh, Google has like a good kind of pictorial uh, description of the uh, classification. And so uh, you'll see the type two A's where they go superior, medial, or lateral. And then the type three A and B where um, they start to drift out lateral or the type three B where they have possible pelvic discontinuity and migrate. Uh, medially. And these ones are where you you actually need kind of a structural allograft or a custom triflange because you're, you have such significant bone loss that it turns into more of an oncologic type of surgery and you're, you need uh, fixation with uh, the rest of the pelvis, including like the iliac wing, the ischium and the, the pubic rami. And so uh, if you are looking for a rim fit, um, how much of the acetabular rim should be intact for that? Yeah. So at least two thirds or like, you know, 66% or so, um, should be intact. So, you know, if, uh, if it's like, uh, I remember my attendings asked me, this like a, a second year or something like that, but you at least need to have two thirds of the contact, uh, with the rim, with the cup and at least 50% of bone stock is required for a cementless, uh, hemispherical cup. Um, and so, you know, what are the you know, we're, we're doing our, we're doing our total hip arthroplasty. We're putting a cup in maybe not the greatest bone. So we're going to add some screws into the cup and there are different zones uh, for where you can put these acetabular screws. You know, this divide, if you divide it into four quadrants, you know, you have your anterior, anterior, superior, inferior, and then your posterior, superior, inferior. What, um, what, what are the zones um, for acetabular screw placement kind of from, well, maybe some more safer zones, a little bit more dangerous zones? Yeah, so you have, uh, I mean, you you're going to break the, the acetabulum and the rest of the pelvis into four quadrants. So you have posterior superior, which is kind of the, the best a uh, place to put screws because it's it's considered the safest. However, you do put the sciatic nerve and the uh, superior gluteal neuro neurovascular bundle at risk because you're aiming screws kind of towards the sciatic notch in that. But the more you aim toward uh, like PSIS, the safer those screws are going to be. Then you have posterior inferior, which is more towards the um, ischial tuberosity, you, you still put the sciatic nerve at risk with those. Um, if you go medial, you put the pudendal neurovascular bundle at risk, and then also the, um, inferior gluteal neurovascular bundle at risk in that zone as well. Um, but your screws are typically going to be fairly small. The posterior superior ones, if you get a bomber screw, you can potentially put like a 
60 or 70 millimeter screw if you're well within that acetabular corridor back up to the PSIS. But these screws, just because of the amount of bone stock, they're usually around less than uh, like 20, 25 millimeters. And then anywhere anteriorly, you can put screws, but you have to be extremely cautious when you do that. So anterior superior, um, you risk the external iliac vessels uh, as you uh, drill through that. And then anterior inferior, you uh, risk the obturator neurovascular bundles. So if you have to put screws in the uh, anterior, inferior, or superior portions, you can. You just have to be very cautious because going anywhere anterior is considered more dangerous than going posterior. And so uh, now you get stuck with a classification system, <laughs> uh, but it's a very good one to know. It's one that you'll get pimped on all the time and one that the OITE will test you on for sure. What is the Vancouver classification for periprosthetic femur fractures? Yeah. So this is going, just like you said, it's for periprosthetic femur fractures. And so it's divided into A, B, and C or where the fracture location is uh, in relationship to the stem. So A is a fracture around a trochanter. B is a fracture at the level of the stem and C is going to be a fracture distal to the implant. So when you look at A, uh, again, a, a fracture of the greater, a, a fracture of the trochanter, you can have a fracture of the greater or the lesser trochanter. And these are typically can be treated non-operatively. Um, but the time that you would operate on these are in patients that may have a displaced uh, greater trochanter fracture. And these may be fixed like a, either a cable plate or a hook plate, something that grabs that um, trochanter and brings it back to where it needs to go. Now, when you look at B, um, again, this is going to be a fracture at the level of the stem. And B is further classified uh, into kind of if the implant is stable and then how much bone stock they have. So B1s are going to be where the implant is stable. And for those, you can just fix it normally. So open reduction, internal fixation, like with a plate. Um, B2 is where the implant is loose, but you still have good bone stock available for, uh, for fixation. So uh, these are, you're going you're gonna to fix the fracture as well as revise the stem to a diaphyseal engaging tapered stem, plus or minus, you know, an allograft strut. So again, B2s are going to be where the implant is loose and there's going to be good bone stock. So you're going to fix these and revise to a diaphyseal engaging stem. And then B3 is when you have a loose implant with poor bone stock. Again, so you look at the x-rays and they just have almost like no metaphyseal bone or anything there and the implants loose. And so these are going to be where you're looking more towards like a proximal femoral place or an some type of allograft prosthesis. And then uh, Vancouver C's, which again are going to be discs to the implant. You just kind of fix those as normal. So you fix those open reduction internal fixation. And there's a lot of questions on these. And, you know, one, I remember when I was like, you know, doing questions as second, first, second, third year, I was like, how do you know if the implant's stable? Like, how, like, how are you figuring that out just from looking at this x-ray? And so sometimes you can see sub subsidence of the implant, or if you see like a spiral fracture that goes right through the implant, I think you can, can assume that that may be an unstable, um, that the that the implant may a little bit, may be loose. Um, but again, you just got to kind of get, get used to seeing a lot of these different x-rays. So if the, if it's a B2 or you have a fracture at the level 
of the implant and it has good bone stock, again, you're going to revise the, um, the femoral stem to a diaphyseal engaging tapered stem. Uh, and then you're going to open reduction internal fixate the fracture. And B3 is going to be some type of a proximal femur replacement where you have a loose implant. You don't have great bone stock to fix anything. Uh, and then C's, again, which are going to be distal to the implant, you just fix those open reduction internal fixation. Uh, now, continuing on with, with the, I guess, these periprosthetic femur fractures, we actually have one of these a couple, a couple, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what is the treatment of an intraoperative calcar fracture? So you're putting in, you know, you could be putting in a stem or putting in a brooch or the final implant, and you're trying to get that implant all the way down to the level of where you had the brooch at to so make sure the leg lengths are perfectly, you know, how you want it. And you notice a little crack in the calcar, which, you know, can, I think most of the times is, would be anterior medial, but sometimes it can be posterior medial, but you, you notice a little fracture there. What are you going to, what are you going to do? So first thing is, yeah, sometimes you hear it. Uh, sometimes it's, it's noticed a little bit later after you seat the implant and um, you should get, I mean, perfect resistance with the implant, meaning you can't mallet it down any further but if you're like man my my brooch set here in my implant has gone down like three millimeters and it's a little bit less uh than ideal then you want to uh, kind of reevaluate the calcar and look and see if there's a fracture if there is remove the implant uh immediately and really check the extent of the fracture um, most of the time, this is just done with kind of direct visualization. Maybe you dissect a little bit medial to the, uh, uh, to the calcar and, um, really just palpate and see how far down this fracture goes. Uh, if it does not, I mean, travel distally or cause a kind of a massive fracture or something that you see as grossly unstable, uh, which is a vast majority of them, uh, with the implant out, you uh, place a cerclage cable uh, around the fracture. So most of the time this is done with uh, just one cerclage. Um, you place it superior to the lesser, but inferior to the neck cut because you don't want metal on metal uh, rubbing on each other because you'll get um, metallosis and osteolysis and all of that stuff. Um, so you put the cerclage cable around the bone, you tighten it, and then uh, you can just usually re-implant that same stem because you've you fixed the fracture. You your cerclage cable is going to reduce those uh, hoop stresses that the implant is causing, and it, you just continue as as before. You seat the implant. Um, they're allowed to weight bear as tolerated postoperatively, and there's really no major major uh, consequence of it. If you feel like this fracture has traveled very distal or has broken the femur more than just the calcar and you get intra-op x-rays and it does show a fracture of the femur, then you have a little bit of a different scenario. That's when you're uh, opening up the femur more, you're fixing it either with further cerclage cables and you're considering now the use of a diaphyseal fit stem, um, similar to how you would treat a loose implant with good bone stock after a Vancouver B2 periprosthetic fracture. So the 
the most common thing you're going to do and see is just circulage cables around the uh, proximal femur. But if it does travel more distal, then you can uh, put more cables and do a diaphyseal fit stem for intraop calcar fractures. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. And uh, subscribe, and we will see you next week, or maybe in a few days, or maybe later today. It depends on when the next video comes out. <laughs>